We're so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread His truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the Word to resurrect among us so that Heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Well, good morning, listeners. We are going to continue on through and finish up Colossians by going over Colossians 4. And if you listen to our, our previous podcast that I just actually got done doing, a biblical perspective on war, um, I... My heart is really heavy right now. Um, it, it was one that is very near to me, but is also very burdensome to me as, as I look out into the church and I see how many people um, understand the gospel but don't actually live it out. And I'm going to try to get through Colossians 4 and have that burden um, I'm just trusting that the Spirit is going to guide me through this just because it's, I'm, I'm feeling heavy right now. Um, and maybe I should have just given some time, I guess, before it. But here we are. Um, I'd encourage you to go listen to it. And just hope and pray that the Lord will use it in your life. Um, but moving forward... We're going to go through and we're going to finish Colossians chapter 4. Before I do that, I want to hear from you guys if there's anything that you guys are wanting to go through, that you're wanting to uh, take a book of, of the Bible and, and go through and, and just expositorily go verse by verse through it. If there's one that you have you know, had a hard time understanding in the past or whatnot, or if there's a topic that you want to know about, uh, shoot me a comment, let me know, and I'd love to be able to try to accommodate that as the Lord uh, makes it available. And so... We're going to go on Colossians 4. If you have not listened to chapters 1, 2, or 3, I'd encourage you to do that so far. I think in Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, these these three chapters that I've gotten done doing, those uh, have probably been some of my favorite ones. And it's almost surprising to me because... I love teaching Galatians and Ephesians. Um, every time I go through that, every time I teach a series on it, or even I just personal study through those two books, those are two of my favorite ones. When I, when I quote things, they're oftentimes from Galatians and Ephesians. Um, and Colossians is kind of on a, a lower peg for me. I still love it, but it's on a lower rung for me on that ladder. And so it's surprising to me that this has been probably my favorite sermon series that we've done is going through the book of Colossians. And so chapter 4 is more of a, an ending. Uh, it's more of a, you know, let's summarize everything and just kind of wrap it up. So there's not going to be as many practical, uh, you know, applicatory type things for the life of Christians today. However, there still is some. And we're going to get into those, uh, but it's probably going to be a little bit shorter than what some of the others are, Lord willing. And <laughs> he might say, this is going to be the longest one. What are you talking about? So he goes on. He says, Masters, treat your bond servants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, this is 
starting off in chapter 4, verse 1, this is kind of piggybacking off of what he ends with in chapter 3 when he's just talking about wives and husbands and children and fathers and bondservants. So he talks about bondservants, about how even if your masters are unfair, you still have an obligation to respect them and to honor them. If you want more proof on that, go to 1 Peter chapter 2. He says the very same thing in those passages, even, in fact, a few times. He, he reiterates it a couple of times about servants, obey your masters, be subject to them uh, with all respect, even to not just the good and the fair, but also to the unjust. He says, I want you to make sure that you understand that when you are under an authority that's, that's put there by God in your life, whether that's a governing authority of a nation, whether that's the governing authority of a husband over his wife, whether that's the governing authority of elders over the church, it does not matter, your boss at work. When, when you are under a prescribed authority of God, even if that authority is not doing what they're supposed to, you still have an obligation to do what you are supposed to. So even if they're not worthy of your respect, you still have to respect them. Further proof on that, go to First Peter chapter 3, verse 1, when he says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Even if they're not doing what they're supposed to, you still need to respect them and have your conduct be pure before them. And that goes for any authority. Governing authorities, this whole idea of resisting authorities is actually completely unbiblical unless it makes you disobey God. The only acceptable time. And I've talked about this at length with wearing masks or whatnot. You know, a lot of people are like, I'm not wearing masks just because they told me to. I don't want to do it. And I'm going to stand up for my rights because who knows what they're going to take from me next. I'm sorry, that's not your prerogative. Your prerogative is to show respect and honor and to have pure conduct and to simply go ahead and do it. Even if you think it's unjust, even if you think it's unfair, you still need to do it. Now, that's another topic. Here, he's addressing um, masters. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. He says, you know what? If you are that authority, then you need to make sure that you're operating in a way that pleases God. That you would show no partiality, that you'd be committed to, um, if, you're a believing, if you're a believer, that you're committed to governing in, in accordance with the word of God. That's your part. But again, if you're under that authority and they're not doing their part, you still have an obligation to do yours. He goes on, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. One of my favorite verses, you know, he says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it. And I love this because he's talking about, look, I want you to pray. And if you don't see the results, I want you to keep praying. If you don't see the results, I want you to keep praying. If you don't see the results, I want you to keep praying. And I want you to be watchful and expectant, knowing that God hears your prayer. As he says, the, the prayers of a righteous person avail much. That God hears your prayer, right? If you're doing what he's asking you to do, he hears your prayer. He acknowledges your prayer. Now, this can get into a whole different uh, dynamic on this to where there are times where God won't listen to your prayer. I don't care if you're a Christian or not. If Christ is abiding in you and you abide in him, if you're not living the way that you ought to, then God will not hear your prayer. 1 Peter 3, 7 says, husbands who aren't honoring their wives, he says that your prayers are hindered. 1 Peter 4, he goes on to say, I think it's in verse 5 or somewhere in there, he says that... Um, if you're not living a self-controlled life, if you're not disciplining your body, keeping the flesh under control and living according to the Spirit, paraphrasing on this, he says, uh, then your prayers can be hindered. In John 15, he talks about if you're not honoring the church, if you're not loving the church the way that she needs to be loved and honored, then your prayers are hindered. 
If you're not living the way that you're supposed to, and you have secret sin in your life, and you've got darkness in your life, then your prayers will be hindered. One of the best examples of this is in Second um, Chronicles 7.14, and one of the very famous passages says, If my people pray, if they humble themselves and pray, and lift up their voice, and they call upon me, then I will hear from heaven, and I will heal their land. Paraphrased on that. He says, if you do your part and you humble yourself and you live according to my will and you're doing what I'm asking you to do, then I will hear from heaven and I will heal your land. But did you know, Christian, that you are that proverbial land that he's referencing there? When the, when the Israelites came into the land of Canaan, this was a territory purchased by blood. It's literally the outskirts of it, the Damim. You have a place called Paz Damim. It's the boundary of blood. This was an, an area purchased by blood. Then they crossed over the Jordan, which means the descender. And these people came into this territory. And they had original inhabitants. And they were commanded, get those original inhabitants out so that my land might be holy. Did you know that you are that land that the Spirit of God inhabits and comes into to dwell? And he begins to force the original inhabitants out, those, the first dwellers that live there. He begins to push those things out. It's called the flesh. So that his land could be holy. Did, did you know that that was you? And so in Second Chronicles 7.14, that's actually a statement that if you are humbling yourself and you are doing what you're supposed to, that he would then heal your land, that your soul could be purified. And he says, I want you to continue in prayer, being watchful in it. Look to that horizon for his answer. It reminds me of Elijah back in First Kings, I think it's in uh, chapter 18, somewhere like you know, 40, 41, 42, something like that, where Elijah is praying for rain. Right For three and a half years it hasn't rained and at his, his word that God gave him permission to, his word it didn't rain. And all of a sudden he's like, okay, it's time. And so he gets down on his knees and he prays. He looks up and he sends a servant to go, to go see if, if rain's coming. The servants come back again. He says, no, no master, no rain's coming. So he gets down and he prays again. He does that seven times. And finally on that seventh time, the servant comes back and he says, I, I see a cloud the size of a man's hand in the sky in the distance. And he goes, it's coming. He continued steadfastly in prayer and he was watchful for God's answer because he had faith and he knew that God was going to honor his prayers because he was living the way that he needed to. And he says, and do it with thanksgiving. Knowing where the answer is coming from. He says at the same time pray also for us. That God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. On account of which I am in prison. So why was Paul in prison? It was because of Christ. I, I um, am hard pressed to say that I think a time is coming very soon. Where our faith will be put to the test and our allegiance will be put to the test That there might be many people who are thrown in prison because of their allegiance to Christ and Him alone. Did you know that in Isaiah, I think it's in 29, I don't remember exactly where it's at. But there's one where it says that um, a word has gone out from His mouth that you shall swear allegiance to Him and to Him alone. You are not ever entitled in any way, shape or form to swear allegiance to anything other than Christ. And I think that's going to be tested soon. And a lot of people, I think, because their allegiance is to a governing nation, a lot of people's allegiance is going to be tested and is going to be proven to be false. 
that they don't really have an allegiance to Christ. They're still seeking to please man. He says, on account of which I am suffering, or I'm, I'm sorry, I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. He has a similar prayer in Ephesians 6, 19-20, whenever Paul is asking for prayer again. And I love this, because we oftentimes think that Paul is just, he didn't need prayer, he had it all figured out. And in many ways he did, but he also realized that he needed the prayers of his brothers and sisters in Ephesians six nineteen to twenty, it says, "And also for me, that words may be given to me, and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I might make it. I'm sorry, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak." He said, "Paul wanted to make sure that above all things, he didn't care what happened to himself. He didn't care if he got thrown into prison. He didn't care if he, if he even died, because Philippians says that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says, I don't care. I count my life of no value. This goes into what I was talking about in the previous podcast about a biblical perspective on war. Paul says, I don't care if I die. I don't care what people do to me. I don't care if I end up getting stretched out on a cross. I don't care if I'm beheaded. I don't care. All I want to do is testify to the glory of Christ in the image of Christ. I want to represent him well. And so I need to clearly and boldly proclaim the gospel of Christ to the grace of Christ. He says, I want to make it clear, and I need your prayers for that. Because I know it's a supernatural thing. It's not just going to be through me praying. It's going to be through all of us praying together. He goes on, he says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Ephesians 5 has a very similar statement. And I'll just ask you, I'll pose you the question. Are you making the best use of your time? Are you walking in wisdom towards outsiders? And not a worldly wisdom, 1 Corinthians 3 says that wisdom of this age is folly to God. God doesn't care about worldly wisdom. In fact, he even says that it's futile. Are you walking in wisdom, of God's wisdom, in accordance with Christ and, and the gospel that we have? Are you walking in that kind of wisdom towards outsiders? Outsiders is, is a term that even going to the Old Testament would represent people who are not saved. Are you walking in wisdom towards them? Are you being an ambassador of Christ, representing Christ, because Christ is the wisdom of God? So are you, do you look like Christ towards outsiders, towards unbelievers? I'm not just talking about are you a humanitarian who loves people and who serves people and is kind to people. That's not what it means to follow Christ. That's an aspect of it. But there might be times where you say things that it's not going to seem very kind or loving to people. And yet it's the greatest form of love that you can really give to them. Are you walking in Christ towards outsiders? And are you making the best use of your time? Or are you so preoccupied with things that are vying for your attention of this world, even good things, that you don't have time for Him? He says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now, this is a... a, a an interesting statement on this one because a lot of times people kind of misunderstand what it means to be gracious and they just look at that and they think, oh, it, it means that you should be always kind, that your speech should always just be kind. And yet, that's not exactly what he's referencing here. If you look in scripture and you kind of understand and dissect what grace really is, you know, I, I think that times it can be where it is um, a kind statement. It's, it's um, something that is um, 
you know, a kind word to somebody in, in time of need. But it can also be that fitting word of rebuke that would then empower them to do what they're supposed to do. And it's not always going to be a kind word. Sometimes it's just simply going to be that enabling word to empower them. Because that's what grace is. It's, it's power. It's authority. It's not, just un, it's not just this concept of unmerited favor that we always talk about. It's, it's enabling, right? It's enabling people to be who, they, who God wants them to be. And sometimes that comes with a sharp word. In Ephesians 5, 15-17, he says a similar thing. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. In the same way, he talks about you know, this concept of making the best use of our time and walking in wisdom towards outsiders and making sure that we're living the life that we need to be in reflection of Jesus Christ. And he says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And that only comes through knowing the word of God. As we talked about in Colossians chapter 3, just previously to this, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Does it dwell in you richly? He says, teaching and admonishing one another. When the word of Christ dwells in you richly, your speech will be seasoned with salt. It will give grace to the hearer. Sometimes that's going to be through admonishment. Sometimes that's going to be through teaching. Somebody might have an incorrect viewpoint. Somebody might be thinking, you know, whatever it might be. I I don't have anything off the top of my head right now. But somebody might be having an incorrect viewpoint towards the word of God. And you're going to be that um, Prisca and Aquila who comes to Apollos and teaches him more accurately the word of God. That's still grace. And I say this because I think a lot of times people have this misunderstanding of what grace is. And they think it's just a kind word. They think it's just, you know, being nice to people. That's not what grace is, not, not in its fullness. So he says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, essentially be Christ, even to unbelievers. Show them the true Christ. Make the best use of your time, as Ephesians 5 adds, because the days are evil. To make sure you're not engaging in civilian pursuits, make sure that your aim is the things of heaven, as he talks about in Colossians 3, 1 through 2, when he says, set your mind on the things above he says, let your speech always be gracious and seasoned with salt so that you may know how to answer each person. Tychicus will tell you about all my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage our hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, you find his story in Philemon, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Now you can go into Acts 19 and Acts 27 and Philemon 1, 24. You're going to find a lot of the stories of some of these guys. Even going into Acts 15 and Acts 12 when he talks about Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greet you and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. I love this part actually because... When you look back in in Acts, you see the story of a time when Paul and Barnabas had taken Mark with them on their travels and Mark abandoned them. And and it caused this rift between them in which they wanted to go back and visit the churches that they had formerly gone to. And um, Paul was like, I don't think that it's wise to take Mark, the one who abandoned us, that these churches would have known what he did. I don't think it's the wisest thing to take him. 
Because I think maybe he still needs some more seasoning. But Barnabas, he stuck up for him. And you see here that maybe part of the reason Barnabas did was not because it was a biblical thing. Because as, as Jesus even says, if you're faithful in a little, you'll be faithful in much. Paul realized Mark was not faithful in a little. So I'm not sure that we can trust him. He, he kind of lost that trust. So maybe he needs to earn that back. And maybe you see Barnabas looking at Mark and saying, oh, no, no, man, he's part of my family. I can't do that to him. And they had this, this rift between them. So much so to where they split and Paul took Silas and Barnabas took Mark. But you see that there was some sort of reconciliation between Paul and Mark, who even says, if he comes to you, welcome him. He says, even in later times, I forget which book it is, but he talks about it where he says, um, he's useful to me for ministry. There was a reconciliation there, but there had to be some refining in Mark before I believe Paul let him back in and said, okay, now I can trust you again. And it reminds me of the story of Noah, uh, not Noah, Moses and Korah. Well, I believe if I remember the lineage correctly, that Korah was actually a cousin to Moses. And why is that important? Well, go back and read in Numbers chapter 16 that you're going to find that in Numbers 16, there's something called Korah's rebellion. And in this rebellion, essentially Korah and Dathan come trouncing before Moses and they're like, look, Moses, we don't need you to be an authority over us. And you can probably see that family doesn't like to be told what to do by family. Right? I mean, you probably know what I'm talking about. Family, doesn't they think they're on equal terms. And so Korah's standing there, and he's the cousin to Moses. He's like, Moses, you're not going to be my authority. We're all holy in God's sight. I don't need you to tell me what to do. And so they begin to actually do things that go against and violate the word of God. And so Moses goes to God, and he's like, hey, God, i got an issue here with, with my cousin and his, his buddies. What do I do? And God says, tell you what, you need to separate from them because they're going to get destroyed in a new way that nobody's ever seen before. And the ground is going to open up and swallow them alive with them, with their wives, with their children, with all their possessions so that Israel might be purged from the evil. And you know what Moses did? He didn't go and he didn't say, um, hey, I mean, God, he's my cousin. I mean, I can't really, I don't really want to do that. He's family. No, he listened to God. He did what what he said. And Korah's rebellion was purged from Israel. See, oftentimes I think that our allegiance to our family trumps our allegiance to God. Our bond with our family and blood is a greater bond than the blood we have united with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that should not be so. Galatians 6 talks about it. He says, as we have opportunity to do good to all, but especially those of the household of faith. And in 1 Timothy 5.8, he talks about that the one who actually... Who doesn't take care of his earthly blood relatives? That, that's, yeah, that's not a good thing, right? You're still commissioned to take care of them. They are your family. But the one who actually um, rejects or doesn't take care of the family of God, the ones that your blood with Christ in, that you share in his blood with, he says, you're worse than an unbeliever, an infidel, and you've denied the faith. The, this concept of, um, well, they're my family should never trump the word of God and what he tells us to do. And I think you probably saw a shadow of that maybe with Mark and Barnabas. It's it's presuming, and I don't ever want to really presume on things. I'm throwing it out there of the possibility that maybe that's why Barnabas was clouded in his vision and his perspective in the moment. And maybe Paul wasn't. 
But somewhere along the line, Mark got that seasoning, he got that refining that the Lord worked on him, and he became trustworthy to Paul. It says in verse 11, And, and Jesus, who is called Justice, <coughs> excuse me, these are the only men of the circumcision, meaning of the Jews, among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. I love that part. He says that this, uh, this Epaphras, who's one of them, he says, a servant of Christ Jesus, he greets you, he's with me, and he's greeting you, he wants me to say hi. And he says, and he is struggling on your behalf. That means he's, he's interceding for you on your behalf. He's wrestling on your account. He's wrestling on your behalf. Not that you guys are missing the mark, that, that you guys are doing something altogether wrong. He's just like, no, 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 no. They're doing things that are right. And I'm, I'm wrestling in prayer. I'm struggling so that they might be mature. That they would grow in maturity. And fully assured in the will of God for their life. I mean, let me just ask you. And I know this is this is a struggle for me. Is is this kind of praying, interceding for people, where it's the consistent, continuing, steadfastly in prayer for people? I think we've we've forgotten what that's like, and maybe because we don't have the examples today of people who wrestle in prayer. I mean, I'm thinking of guys like John Praying Hyde. I mean, how would you like to have that nickname? Somebody giving you that nickname. He didn't give it to himself, just like the Christians didn't give themselves the name of Christian. That was given to them because they saw that they were Christ-like. They, they didn't just go around being, hey, yeah, I'm a Christian. While they carried an ictus symbol on their luxury SUV. I think in this, in this part here, Epaphras is struggling. You know, John Praying Hyde was a guy that he had to go to the doctor uh, because he was having heart issues. And the doctor examined him and he said, your heart has actually shifted in your body because of the strain that you're putting on this. He says, what are you doing? He goes, it's my prayer life. I carry the burdens of so many people and I, I wrestle with God in prayer for them on their behalf. And the guy says, if, if you don't stop this kind of strain on your heart, then you're going to die. And his response is something that is just, it's, it's altogether otherworldly. It's supernatural. And he says, then I will die. I will not stop struggling in prayer for other Christians. I won't do it. I mean, I think of people like Leonard Ravenhill and John Prane Hyde and, and Reese Howells, people who uh, were prayer warriors. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking right now even of the story of David Bernard, a famous missionary who, uh, as the story goes, that he um, was going into this tribe. Um, I don't remember if they're cannibalistic or what, but they had, they had never heard the gospel. And people, had, they were unreached. So he goes on the outskirts of their village and he's in the woods 
And he just drops on his knees and he starts praying. And I'm, I'm talking about not just praying like, hey, God, uh, would you please reach them and use me and, and whatnot for a three-minute prayer type thing. I mean, he was on his knees um, in anguish. And he was crying out to God in prayer so much so that the village heard him. And the guys came out to see what was going on. And they were coming up to kill him. And he had been laboring for hours in prayer on their behalf, interceding for these people. He had no idea who they were. And these villagers came up with the intent to kill him and they saw this snake slither up next to David Benard and raise up on its head and it came up to him as if it was going to strike him. And he never missed a beat in his prayer. He just kept right on through. Whether he saw the snake or not, didn't matter. He just kept right on through in his praying. And that snake came down, slithered away. And the villagers saw it and they thought... This is somebody we need to listen to. And so when he gets finished with his prayers, he walks into that village and he begins talking to villagers about Jesus Christ. I mean, I, I, I don't have these examples like this in my life. And so it's a struggle for me to, to even, you know, know what this looks like. But when he says that he is always struggling on your behalf, I mean, that's just an amazing concept for me to even think about, that this Epaphras guy was struggling in this. I mean, the, the, the word that's used there is agonazemei. It's not just a, you know, we can't even classify it as just a, you know, well, I mean, he prayed maybe for 30 minutes or an hour, and, and yeah, he carried a little bit of a burden. This agonizing the Greek word that's used here, and even the King James puts it as he labored fervently. It's where we get the English word agonize. I mean, that's, that's when somebody's in pain. That's the word that's used there, that he is laboring fervently in pain. Carrying this burden. It's what it means to fulfill the law of Christ, that we carry one of those burdens. And he says, here's my burden. I want you to be mature in Christ. I want you to be mature. Do you carry burdens like that? If I'm being honest, there was times in my life where I did. But I can't say it's there anymore. You know, things happen in life and we have our seasons, we have our valleys, we have our mountaintops. And, and, and on those mountaintops, and this is to my shame, but in no way does it excuse me or you. It just shows my weaknesses and it just shows that I, right now, um, in this season of following Christ, I am not where I could be. But in no ways does that excuse us from making it our aim to be mature, to be as Christ is. He struggled on their behalf that they would stand mature and be totally assured of the will of God. He says, For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Herapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. So we know Luke here, he's making his appearance, the writer of Acts and the writer of the Gospel of Luke. For um, Theophilus, the, the, an unbelieving Gentile who wanted to have certainty of the things that he had been taught about Jesus before he's really going to commit his life to him. He invested in Luke to say, hey, I want you to go out and find what really happened and go have eyewitness accounts and I'll pay for your voyages to go. Or Theophilus was not a believer. Not by any recollection, because if you have to have certainty of the things that you've been taught, that means you don't have certainty about it, which means you don't have faith. Because what is faith? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So Theophilus wasn't a believer. But Luke went at his request 
to go on the voyages with Paul, to go have eyewitness accounts, to write the Gospel of Luke and the story of Acts. And here we see that he is with Paul, and as is Demas. Demas mentioned three times in Scripture. I believe you see it at the end of Second Timothy chapter four and in and Philippians, um, uh, or maybe no, it's my maybe it's Philemon. Anyways, it's in three total books that Demas is is written in. And from my understanding of Demas, this is a man that served Paul voluntarily in prison, being with him in prison for two years. He served him, and then it says, uh, I don't remember which book it's in. It says that Demas has deserted me. For he was in love with this present world. And you know, I try to find historically anything about Demas. And I can't find anything. It's as if he just vanished off the map. And there was another guy in the Old Testament that was just like that. His name was Cain. And Cain became a wandering star. He served no purpose in life because he deserted who he needed to be. So God made him a wandering star. And he said, nobody's going to be able to kill you. You're going to be a wandering star. You'll serve no purpose until the day that you die. Demas was in love with the present world, and so he deserted Paul. And by all all accounts, it seems as though he apostatized from the faith. I don't know that for sure, but it seems as though he apostatized from the faith. Paul called him a fellow soldier, a fellow worker. He was there with Paul for two years. I think if anyone could see through his ingenuity, it would have been Paul. But it seemed that Paul believed that he was a true believer. And he was there voluntarily for two years. That's more than I can say for many Christians today, that they would go and willingly put themselves in prison. And we're not just talking about today's prison. We're talking about yesteryear's prison, back with Paul. Dirt floors, probably had to go to the bathroom in the corner of it. You know, they, they might not have even cleaned it up. Probably got some very meager, old, crusty rations that you had to eat. This was probably not a life of luxury. And Demas, for two years, put himself willingly in the service of Paul. Many Christians today wouldn't have even done that. So I think we want to be careful to say that he was just not really a true believer when he did things that many Christians today wouldn't do. But whatever it was, whatever took place... It says that he was in love with this present world and he deserted Paul. Oh, how many people I have had even in my short ministry who have fallen in love with things of this world and have deserted me. And in extension, they deserted Christ. I've seen people who their families become the idol in their life. I've seen people who their jobs become their idol. Money becomes their idol. Themselves become the idol. Those are all worldly things. If you don't believe me, go listen to my podcast over Colossians chapter 3. Or you could just go read 1 Corinthians 7, 32-35 when he says, Your desire to please your wife or your desire to please your husband is a worldly desire. I'm not saying that it's necessarily wrong. But I am saying that if it takes place of pleasing God, then it's an idol. And I've had many people who have chosen to say that their family or that their job or that money or their reputation or themselves was more important than pleasing God according to his word. He goes on in 15, give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and to the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have, <clears throat> have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you have, that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. 
I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hands. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. He ends this, and I want you to see the correspondence with the church in Laodicea. Paul had influence in the church in Laodicea. There was correspondence not just with Paul to them, but them to Paul. So it seems as though when Jesus is writing his letter to the church in Laodicea, that these are people who are actually believers, that the gospel had truly gone there, that there was people who genuinely were raised up. And yet, somehow, over the course of the years, they began to dwindle. And how did they dwindle? How did they begin to actually walk away from the faith? Is They began to prosper. Go read it. Revelation chapter 3. You're going to find that he says that you're neither hot nor cold. You're lukewarm. I would rather you be hot or cold. I would rather you make a decision. Jump on one side of the fence or the other. Stop trying to ride the two. He says, or I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. And it's a violent upheaval. It's not just a spitting where he kind of got a taste for them and spit them out, but they always remained in his mouth. This is a vomiting. This means that they were ingested. This means, and I know it might be graphic and gross, but this is just giving you an accurate portrayal of what he's talking about. This isn't just a taste test. And he's like, nope, you didn't, you didn't stand the test. No, they were a part of Christ. And he says, if you don't get your act together... I'm going to spit you out of my mouth because you guys have prospered. You've become rich. You've become self-indulgent. You've become all these things and you have forgotten me. And you need to repent. You need to repent. Oftentimes, the way that Satan gets to the bride of Christ, to the betrothed of Christ, is through worldly prosperity. I was meeting with a guy one time I hadn't talked to him about six months and he had really fallen off the bandwagon of following Christ. And life began to get easy for him. Things began to work out. And I remember talking to him. I had um, lunch with him at a restaurant out here. And I was just letting him talk. And he was like, you know, I asked him how things were. And he's like, man, man my relationship with my wife is great. My, my kids are great. My job is going good. You know, I mean, it's like, you know, the Lord, the Lord's really like everything's great in my life. And all of a sudden he just stopped. And I kind of looked at him and he was, you could tell he was pondering. He's like... I don't have a target on my back. He said, everything's great in my life because I'm not a target anymore of the enemy. Let me just tell you something real quick. When you begin to get lazy, it's oftentimes because you begin to prosper in this world. And when you get lazy, you begin to prosper in this world, things, all things start going well for you. Satan has no reason to come after you because you're not a threat to him anymore. The people that Satan comes after, that he throws in prison, that he brings suffering in their life, the afflicted, that's the ones who are serving Christ. So when your life is easy, there's a good chance that you've stopped following Christ and you stopped putting that cross on your shoulder. Because the way of following Christ is hard. And it's a narrow way and few people choose to walk it with that cross on their shoulder. He says in 2 Timothy 3.12 that anyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You know why? Because you have a target on your back and the enemy will come after you. And he will try to get you to, to do anything so that he can steal, kill, and destroy and get you to let your guard down. And oftentimes that comes through self-indulgence or prosperity. And that's what happened to the Laodiceans. And he told Archippus, Archippus that 
fulfill the ministry to which the Lord's called you to. And uh, if you're out there right now and you're listening to this and you have a ministry that's in accordance with the word of God, and I say that because many people try to have ministries that's not in accordance with his word. If you have a ministry that God's called you to, be faithful to it. Be faithful to it. Don't give up. Endure. You will see Christ in the end. You will see Christ. And the grace of God will be revealed to you. As First Peter one um, thirteen talks about, First Peter 5 talks about, that after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace will himself be the one who comes to strengthen, encourage, and, and, um, and lift you up. He'll exalt you at the proper time. But it's after you've suffered a little while. I know ministry is difficult. Ministry, when you are serving as, as a leader in ministry, you're on the front lines, you're one of those, those geese at the front of that flying V. That wind hits you harder than it does anyone else. And it gets tiresome. And as Hebrews 12 talks about when he says, lift those drooping knees and strength, or lift those drooping hands and strengthen those weak knees, make straight paths for your feet. I know that it gets hard. This is something that people who aren't in leadership within ministry will not ever understand. But be faithful to it. Be faithful to it. Don't give up. Keep pressing. Paul says, I want you to remember my chains. I want you to... Um, he says, write this greeting. I write this with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. And I think he just wants you to keep in mind what he's suffering for the sake of Christ and take, um, take hope in that. That he's going through it with joy. And if he can do it through the Spirit of Christ that's in him, then you can do it through the Spirit of Christ that's in you. And this is how he summarizes this book in Colossians. And it's just a, a great book to go through. One of practical instruction. One of hope. One of encouragement. One that will embolden you for the gospel. It's one that you can look at what the gospel will probably bring to your life. It'll probably bring chains of some way. But never forget that you are free in him. And that this world and the enemy, he can never chain those who are free in Christ. And who live like they're free in Christ. You know, recently we were talking about, are we a, are we a, a fight or flight person? And I, I gave my answer to it. And, and I just said, you know, when it comes to me, and it's defending me, I mean, there might be times where I rise up, my flesh rises up and wants to, but I oftentimes am more of a, of a flight guy. Like, I, I won't contend when it comes to my name. I will when it comes to truth. When it comes to the, the name of Christ, when it comes to the glory of God, when it comes to the truth and integrity of the word, I will absolutely fight and contend. And somebody had said something about how when you are free in Christ, when you understand that you're free, you don't have to fight to try to defend yourself because you're already free. And, and I think that we would do well to remember that in our everyday life because people are going to come after us and we have to realize they're not coming after us. They're coming after Christ in us. They take offense at Christ, not us. And so when people slander you and people come after you and people you know, say things that aren't true about you or whatnot, remember that. You're free in Christ. They can't put any chains on you except for the ones that you allow them to. So remember the chains that Paul has and how he's enduring through it. And he's doing it with joy. And remember Christ did the same thing. And so hopefully this series encouraged you. I look forward to where God's going to lead us next. And hopefully you guys um, 
you know, reach out to me, tell me some things that you might want to talk about, some topics or other books that you might want to talk about, and we'll kind of see where the Lord takes us. And so you guys be blessed as you guys share with Christ and share in suffering for Him, uh, as the Word talks about, and as you are willing to fill up those sufferings for Christ, may He fill you with His Spirit um, to be able to pour out for His glory, for His sake, no matter what comes in your way knowing that Christ will be honored and glorified when you represent Him to the world in the way that He has lived and the way that He commissions us to do. And so you all be blessed in that.